0: Welcome to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. Today's show, Radicals and Reactionaries, is a 90-minute special with journalist and novelist Tony McKenna.
1: When you walk through the garden, you gotta watch your back.
0: We'll open with Way Down in the Hole by Tom Waits, off of the 1987 album Frank's Wild Years.
1: If you walk with Jesus, is You gotta keep the devil down in the hole.
0: Tony McKenna's new book is Angels and Demons, a radical anthology of political lives, published by Zero Books. In it, he offers a series of essays about historical figures using a Marxist analysis showing with each of the figures examined how the art, politics, and creativity of their lives is infused by the rhythm and contradictions of the broader historical backdrop. Here's the list of the people he profiles. Where would they appear on your list of angels or demons, radicals or reactionaries? William Blake, Hugo Chavez, Hillary Clinton, Jeremy Corbyn, Andrea Dworkin, Christopher Hitchens, Victor Hugo, Rembrandt, Arthur Schopenhauer, and Donald Trump That one's too easy, I know. The truth is, as usual, more complex than these binary designations, and the key to understanding the ways of people in the world is to recognize that complexity. McKenna's work uses the Marxist lens of historical materialism to give the proper scope to these political lives. What have they done in and to our world? All the angels sing about Jesus'
1: mighty sword and you with their wings.
0: I'll confess, it seems to me, that angels are often as demonic as those we might see more clearly as demons. Perhaps it's best to say that certain qualities are in the ascendant in each figure that push them into the light or subsume them in darkness. Today we'll focus on only a handful of McKenna's cast of players, while also casting back into some highlights from his previous book, notably essays on Vincent van Gogh and The Hunger Games, which McKenna holds in high regard for revealing the realities of class hierarchies in its dystopia. Tony McKenna is a philosopher and journalist whose work has been featured on websites and in magazines and journals across the world. In addition to Angels and Demons, McKenna is the author of a previous collection of essays titled Art, Literature, and Culture from a Marxist Perspective, as well as The Dictator, The Revolution, The Machine, a political account of Joseph Stalin, and the novel The Dying Light. He joined us via Skype from his home in Kent, England. We begin with Victor Hugo's good CEO, Jean Valjean, a kind of romantic superhero, surely an angel if there ever was one, but is a character in a novel our best model to try to emulate. And now, Radicals and Reactionaries, a special 90-minute interchange with Tony McKenna on WFHB. You've got a a new collection from Zero Books called Angels and Demons, a radical anthology of political lives. And you begin the book with, I think, Victor Hugo. And um, it strikes me that in, in Les Miserables, Jean Valjean is a good employer, um it's one of the things that I kind of have always been surprised about the book and surprised that I don't think anybody much talks about right is that uh that Jean Valjean is a, a a leads a corporation in a sense right he perfects some kind of manufacturing process and then is the good employer is that something that's even possible the idea that these towns had corporations had businesses had people they knew to employ them and care for them is that something too paternalistic to imagine anymore, or is it something that just just doesn't make sense in this day and age
2: i don't think it's a bad ideal to aspire to, but I do think it's slightly utopian. I think it's probably been utopian. I mean people in uh, England proposed this at the time of Marx, you know someone like owen mm-hmm. um, that, that, that that you could have this kind of arrangement I think it it, it, it goes back to what we're talking about again um, after the second world War and you get a an incredible economic boon, and well, I'm talking about in the Western countries at least. So I should I should qualify that somewhat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you get a you get a far increased standard of life. You know, uh, certainly in the US, um, you know, you get more people owning cars, television sets, and so on and so forth from the bona fide working classes. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is not whether it's an ideality per se the question is how does it reflect in our current situation and i think it's something a lot more difficult to achieve
1: mm-hmm.
2: when you when you when you have uh, an economic collapse um right right when you have an economic crisis, uh, right. will we see the golden age of <laughs> um, the nineteen fifties onwards? Well, remember what what in a sense created that was the disaster of the Second World War, right. because it smashed capital to pieces. Right. So it allowed for a kind of fundamental regrowth. So, excluding a kind of horrific nuclear war, a third world war, which you know is actually a possibility in in the decades to come.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, then no, I think it's it's slightly a naive vision. Yeah. And I think um, Victor Hugo was obviously, he was someone from the, uh, very privileged, he was someone from the middle classes, but with a sense of social justice. So it doesn't surprise me, really, that he was looking for a solution to society's ills by saying, well, could not, more people be like him. Could not more people understand that the rich are exploiting the poor so terribly? So why don't we just have a few more rich people, a few (laughs) more investors who are prepared to be humane right. and kind right. to their underlings right. um, in the way that Jean Valjean would have done. Well
0: luckily I mean and the wonderful thing about fiction obviously is that Jean Valjean is, is, a, is a creation of and, and, and moves through those particular perspectives uh, in ideal ways as well right? So he's, yeah. he's, uh, he's conscripted, he's jailed, well he's actually jailed for as you said earlier about the I think in, in talking about Rembrandt he's jailed for stealing a loaf of bread. Absolutely, because yeah. because his family is starving uh, and then he's conscripted into the military. He uh, I think at some point, you know, he's in jail. Uh, I don't remember if he escapes or what he's doing that he runs. He in. Does yeah, he, he does. runs into the father, you know, the priest and the priest knows that he's stolen his his candlesticks, you know, his silver candlesticks. But the priest lets him be. Right. The priest says, you know, go your way. And and there's a revelation, you know, like the, it's his it's his Paul on the road to Damascus moment. Right. Where where yeah. he becomes uh, the great Jean Valjean at that point and uh, and then is a good employer as well. So you see all this sort of the the levers that Hugo pulls to make Jean Valjean, all, uh, as well as being superhuman in physical strength. <laughs> He's like the first superhero, I think, Jean Valjean.
2: Well, I mean, I, I, I kind of I, I, I do agree with with, with with that um it's it's a romantic novel. So yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's not as we were talking about before, it's not Balzac, it's not Dostoevsky, it's not socially realist. Right. Um but but yeah, I mean the I, I, I have a hell of a lot of sympathy for Hugo in that sure. because he describes the way in which the poverty and then the way in which any kind of attempt to survive it ends up in the jailhouse or it ends up mm-hmm. being a convict working on the ships or working in the mines or whatever it is, and how that kind of newly burgeoning capitalism just devours the lives of the poor. Right. And it does take an idea, as you quite rightly say, it takes a very, very idealistic form formulation. A priest shows <laughs> him religious charity and then he becomes, you know, spiritually inspired and the 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 that kind of idealism goes you know it reemerges as you've said again um he looks for a kind of perfect unity mm-hmm. whereby a good just employer whos so, who's actually known the horrors of poverty themselves
1: right,
2: right are able to you know treat their people um kindly and
1: right.
2: um and you know not regarding what the Economic situation is because a lot. Of, the truth is, you know, the, the the employers are not necessarily evil, cackling capitalists who want to step on the uh, employees at any point. They're often driven to make people redundant. They're driven to Red. lower wages because if they don't, really? the guy next door is going to do it.
0: Yeah, it's the ruthless
2: crisis, yeah. and they'll go out of business. Yeah. We're not talking about simple. Uh, personal characteristics we're talking about a systematic process which is kind of operating its laws under the radar all the time yeah
0: it's a ruthless logic
2: yeah but i mean you could could victor hugo of in the in the compass of his book could he have actually proposed a realistic solution to that
0: hmm you know, I, I don't think you could. Yeah, no, I, yeah, you're, you, you are at, at times, even if you're, uh, quote unquote, ahead of your times, you're often, you, you're still constrained to thinking within those same terms frequently. You're listening to a special 90-minute interchange. Our guest is Tony McKenna, author of a new radical anthology of political lives called Angels and Demons. We're talking about McKenna's use of a Marxist perspective when writing profiles of political figures and essays about literature and art. Uh, but I did want to ask you a little bit about your first collection, Art, Literature, and Culture from a Marxist Perspective. And I wanted to bring that in here in terms of Uh, Marxist perspective right so you've got cultural essays for a popular or lay audience perhaps uh, which is maybe just to say that people don't need to know Marx or what Marx has said um, thoroughly at least to kind of understand what you're getting at
2: the majority of the essays were written um, with exactly what you had in mind that, that you know I didn't want to unnecessarily bog them down with terminology and to reach as many people who are interested in it as possible uh, you know partly because of my own background partly because I'm mostly self-taught I've got to be very qualified here I think because I've learned from some fantastic academics but there is a whole tradition in academic scholarship of being ridiculously overworthy. I'm, I'm thinking of people like Žižek uh, or Althusser or Foucault or whoever you want to talk you you want to talk about and you get the impression that a lot of that is completely unnecessary in in fact it comes from them differentiating themselves from the from the kind of people on the ground as these kind of sophisticated uh brilliant geniuses who are going to reveal to everybody else the real the truth the nature of reality
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's that's a good way to put it uh, that's uh, the nature of the jargon and the, the nature of how you keep uh, the unwashed out of your particular club yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the one thing I wanted to bring in here in particular, again, uh, noting that we have Paul Buell in here and we were talking, um, in Terre Haute at the Debs house while in the background, uh, trains were rumbling by and you could hear the whistles from the trains as well. Uh, and it reminded me, um, of the essay in art, literature, and culture on the Hunger Games, uh, because Paul spent some time talking about Pullman, the Pullman strike and the Pullman cars and talking about how ridiculously ornate a lot of the, the, the cars were. They were like mansions on wheels. And it struck me as, you know, the, the sort of dystopian future that Susan Collins presents in the Hunger Games is a, is a past to us as well, you know, that that there's there's nothing necessarily futuristic in the way that, you know, the trains are described and things of that nature. But I also wanted to point to the fact in in that in your essay in particular, you point out uh, at least in, you know, you however you might characterize the Hunger Games as a as a work of popular entertainment, you note its specific. um exposure of class politics
2: yeah i mean i i really really like that phrase you know uh, that you just used a uh, dystopian future is as well a past to us um i think that that's certainly true i think a lot of the time just just on that point a lot of the best science fiction is not um, something that's dealing with aliens from the planet Zod who are fighting aliens from the planet Delta. You know, a lot of it is places which, which, which there's almost a, an eerie recognition that we have when we see them. You know, these kind of dystopian vistas don't look mm-hmm. a million miles different from the reality that we've known and have encountered. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing that struck me about writing about the Hunger Games, I mean, one, I I, re- I I first saw it as a film and I really enjoyed, enjoyed the film. But two was something that Colin said herself. She was saying that she was just flicking through uh, TV, the TV channels late at night in some hotel, uh, not really even thinking about it. And she flicked uh, from, a, a, from a kind of reality pro- a TV program where you have these kind of people who are brought on to be um humiliated and derided usually by kind of millionaire judges mm-hmm. and she 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 went on to the next channel and it was uh, uh, off the top of my head my head I can't remember but it was it must have been either the invasion of Afghanistan or the invasion of Iraq so we we'd be talking about the early 2000s mm-hmm. and those two images became concretely fused in that moment you know the image of a Uh, reality TV, which is, which is quite rapacious and exploitative and brings on people who are, you know, the majority of the time quite, quite poor, quite desperate to escape the poverty bracket and who are, you know, again, not always, but the majority of the time made to kind of perform like seals, uh, you know, for the entertainment of their so called betters. And then, you know, the, 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 the idea of so many poor people. Uh, escaping poverty by joining up which is which is which is one of the few ways you can mm-hmm. you can sometimes get an e- education get get a certain level of qualifications so the two things became fused in her mind and I don't know if she put it in precisely these terms but those are class issue you know that is uh, a fundamentally class-based issue and and she said the the story took took off from there so the story was not didactically you know she didn't want to do it this way she didn't consciously set about doing it this way but it was the 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 reality that she lived in and that she that we were encountering bled into the fabric of what she wrote
0: mm-hmm, and,
2: I, and that's why i think it was quite quite potent
0: you're listening to a special 90 minute interchange our guest is tony mckenna author of a new radical anthology of political lives called Angels and Demons. We're talking about the way The Hunger Games highlights current class divisions in a futuristic scenario and the ways entertainments may or may not direct our political imaginations. You know, this uh, draws uh, another parallel with trying to understand entertainments and how they work or don't work or work in ways we don't understand and how we can talk about them after the fact in, in ways that we can't really um, maybe uh, consciously get to while we're partaking in them in some ways, right? So um, entertainments have vastly different um, impressions on people. And in again, through this weekend, we had a conversation about the 1954 movie Salt of the earth which is about a labor strike in New Mexico, um, in Town. It's a, it's a, a classic you know, movie written by blacklisted um, film producers and writers in Hollywood. Uh, and it is extremely didactic, right? It's, its intentions are on its sleeve, basically. And all the speeches lead in those directions where you're going to learn about uh, women's suffrage and then women in the workplace and men being taught how to be female or feminine in many ways or what they think is feminine and how it's just about you know being a person so it's, it's just a very didactic film um, obviously it's done well in terms of having historical resonance and we continue to talk about films like this but also a film not seen <laughs> for a long time, and not seen again by most people and when you have entertainments that are like the Hunger Games, which are massive right uh, massive in its reach, massive in in its actual um, capital production as well uh, how how are we able to think in these terms you know with entertainments? what do entertainments do for us or against us, or how do they fight? To these battles internally as well, right? So, how does a, something as successful as the Hunger Games fight a class war, or make sure we understand that that these are there are particular enemies, and they are such?
2: Well, I, I'm not sure I've got the tools to answer that one. Um, it's it's so, so, so difficult. I mean, I'd have to take it in two separate parts. I mean, first of all, there's what you're what you're beginning with, which is. Um it's what, you know, Marx and Engels might have described as being naturalistic or naturalism. Mm. And that is when a film or a book or, or a painting tries to give you, uh, I suppose, the immediacies of poverty and exploitation in its most naked guise. So the the example that, that, that uh, Engels picked out was quite famously Zola, mm. who he... Who he contrasted with with Balzac, who, who Engels and Marx thought of as being a socially realist writer. Um, so 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 Balzac was able to give you the the, the broader totality, the interactions of society um, on a much wider and richer basis, whereas Zola would focus in. Uh, I mean, at least in German art. I'm not a, I'm not as old as scholar, mm-hmm. but. But, uh, you know, on a very, very specific, uh, economic struggle. Um, I don't, I don't, I think, I think Zola's a fantastic writer. Um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with being didactic. Um, but in the second part, you also, you, you also mentioned something else that, that the, the, these kind of things are often quite forgotten quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but you know, there's some 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 really great works of art managed to somehow tread the line between the both. So if you if you if you think about something like *Grapes of Wrath* by Steinbeck, um, in one sense, it's the, the the levels of exploitation are vividly and naturalistically on display. On the other sense it's it it becomes almost something like an iliad uh, well i should say an odyssey Mm -hmm. it becomes a kind of epic journey which almost has a certain kind of mythological reference uh resonance at certain points so so yeah
0: (laughs) it's just it's a it was a big question i didn't mean to make it so big as i keep as i kept talking it got bigger and bigger
2: <laughs> no that's that, 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 that's, the, that's the best way think, so.
0: yeah well uh you know it's uh it's a it's a problem i think because you know interestingly um you know the question that I suppose I tried to get to eventually had to do as much with the power of, of uh, visual media in movies and television as opposed to the examples uh that we might talk about grapes of wrath might have been wildly successful but it's you know it's in a different medium Entirely, uh, Zola and Balzac as well, uh, obviously. And, and we can go forward into your essays on uh, Van Gogh and um, Rembrandt as well, which would be another way in which we can think about art, but it's a much slower form, right? A, a form that might be stillness compared to the forms we're, we're kind of encountered with daily uh, to try to parse and, and be able to read uh, what's going on in them, especially if they, they are intended to persuade in any way in particular
2: well um I mean obviously in, in in the in the case of grapes of Wrath, I think there's been several films yes that's true especially made about yeah, it. yeah, so, yeah. So, it's, so there's not quite a complete break yeah. between the now and then that's true. Um, I, I mean I've read I, I read a survey recently or um, which suggested that you know now in in the us um socialism I think it was maybe 60 or 70 percent of people under this kind of particular questionnaire thought it might be a good thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you'd have, again, I'm I'm guessing, but if you'd have asked the same question 30 years before um, when the Cold War was still going on, um, I think there would have only been a minority of of people who would have even dared to say something like that and not been looked at as being kooks or crazies. And the reason why I say that is because I do think it 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 bear it bears on issues like the Hunger Games mm. or things like Harry Potter, which is also something I write about, which mm-hmm. is um, I I think a very very radical book or set of books, um, and they are a lot of these things are putting the questions of class very explicitly on the table. In the Hunger Games, you get a very strong um, Contradiction between the kind of very, very rich, salubrious, aristocratic, decadent centre, um, which is all about financial capital in a sense. It's all about um, the investment in form, uh, the 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 you know the the, the actual practical uh, digging your hands into the earth and getting messy and producing products which actually people can use. These kind of things are. Um, projected out onto, onto the periphery. And, you know, the capital in the Hunger Games is this kind of massive, um, cosmopolis and it, it draws in tribute mm-hmm. from the, uh, from the, from the out, outlying regions um and that obviously again not didactically but it has it has all sorts of bearings on things like the global economic crisis which you know originated in the kind of american subprime mortgage uh market and the the packaging of financial packages uh which excluded the actual houses themselves i right. mean in a, when you when you when you Invest in a subprime. You're not investing in houses. You're investing in the mortgages.
0: Right, a tool, and an, a financial tool.
2: A financial tool, mm-hmm. which, we, 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 and The Hunger Games is absolutely about that. Mm-hmm.
0: And um, mm-hmm.
2: yeah, so it's it's it. So those kind of themes bleed into it. Though I'm sure, you know, I think I think if I'm not mistaken, The Hunger Games was actually written a year before, something like that. <laughs>
0: It's time for a break. This is And the Angels Swing by Stan Getz from 1947. More with Tony McKenna, author of Angels and Demons, a radical anthology of political lives, when Interchange returns on WFHB. Back to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. Our show is Radicals and Reactionaries, and our guest is journalist and novelist Tony McKenna. Our first segment centered on what it means to apply a Marxist analysis to literature and art, and for this segment, we'll turn that analytical framework on the political lives profiled in McKenna's new book. So let's turn to your new collection, uh, Tony, uh, Angels and Demons, a Radical Anthology of Political Lives. And just tell us a little bit about the framework of it, Angels and Demons. It's not a book about uh, uh, the metaphysical, is it?
2: Uh, no. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I went for a somewhat kind of literary title. Um unfortunately one of your fellow countrymen someone called Dan Brown i believe has
0: yes, got right. some kind,
2: <laughs> right. apparently he's doing a bit better than me
0: Dan Brown he- yeah i he- heard that yeah. so it <laughs>
2: probably wasn't the yeah. uh, best of titles to choose from a, from a commercial perspective mm-hmm. but angels and demons i mean we that's that's really a kind of figurative way of talking about
0: well reactionaries and radicals Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. reactionaries and radicals that's that's uh, you didn't try that title out
2: no i i i can't imagine why it wouldn't have struck gold, but you know I like that
0: one, yeah, yeah
2: it's not too bad
0: yeah, it's pretty good um so uh you 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 basically have a list uh, or a group of essays on people who are uh either angelic in some form or demonic in some form, i suppose, or framed in in those terms uh I think you have more angels than demons in the book, right one, two, three, four, five, six angels, and four demons, it looks like.
2: That sounds about right. Although, of course, there's, you know, crossover in, yeah, every, yeah, yeah. in every life.
0: Yeah, of course, of course. Um, so let's, let's look at a few of these. And the reason I, I keep hitting on the, the Van Gogh and um, the Rembrandt is the one I never thought of, about Rembrandt generally. In my life, other than having, you know, a general sense of who he, who, what he painted, not who he was, right, but what he painted. Uh, so it was an illuminating chapter. And, but I, I wanted to start with the, the previous books, um, a bit on, on Van Gogh because, uh, I, you write something I thought was just really fascinating, uh, about, uh, what I guess would be a kind of depoliticization, um, of people, like I think of this, this is the term that uh, strikes me as been, um, being necessary to think about as, as we talk about a generation of people who were sort of depoliticized and as you talked about already people becoming more and more interested or saying they're more uh, likely to think socialism is okay or might be worth trying or something like that is that we have what seems to be a kind of repoliticization uh, of, of a lot of people as well so you say that there's this period where uh, that I think that, that Van Gogh himself had no political education and it's part of what I think happens in your work is this attempt to to make some of these stories that may be familiar to many of us more political than we take them to be
2: yeah i mean certainly in the case of van gogh because i i i I think the mainstream analysis of him is is quite simple and it's you know he was a lonely individual and he didn't quite fit in and he got very very mentally ill Mm-hmm. Um and killed himself and um there's there's a, there's a lot of truth to that um but but there's also a broader background he was um someone who was very very um cons- he had a great instinct and an emotional sensibility for people who've been outcast, people who've been exploited, uh you know his very early paintings uh, he didn't start painting until, till rather l- late in his own life. I mean, he started painting at 27. He was dead by 37. But you know, some of his earliest works were about simply categorising and um, describing uh, peasants working in fields,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: or peasants, you know, um, ha- have it, ha- have it having having me- a meal, you know, by by candlelight. Um, and before that, of course, he was a preacher. Mm-hmm or he he was a wannabe preacher, which would be more accurate yeah, because he wanted to he wanted to go and live within the very, very poorest communities uh, peasants, mine workers, and so on and so forth, and bring the word of the Lord to them um, you know he, he, he was quite um, idealistic in that sense and the 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 church establishment um, dismissed him and and prevented him from... Uh, going any further because they said that this this kind of stuff was uh, bringing the church into disrepute. Right,
0: beneath know. beneath the dignity of a priest or preacher. Well, absolutely. Right, absolutely. right, absolutely. Right.
2: So 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 you can look at a lot of his art. Uh, in some sense, you know, some of the themes, at least, which pervade it, are one about his own loneliness, his alienation, his failure to find a a, a place in the social world, uh, and to channeling this incredible empathy and this incredible sensitivity for the, for the minute and the details of the lives of uh, ordinary people and people who were struggling and people who were uh, often incredibly joyous and happy. And, um, you know, he, he, he was a bit like myself in this one respect. He was a big fan of bars.
0: <laughs> That's where people were gathered. Exactly. You're listening to a special 90-minute interchange. Our guest is Tony McKenna, author of a new radical anthology of political lives called Angels and Demons. We're talking about Van Gogh's development as an artist and his lack of a political vocabulary, and we move into a discussion of Rembrandt's divided self as a bourgeois and a radical. Most you know, most of it is nebulous and emotive. You say because he hadn't inherited those partic- particular political traditions, but to watch a uh, to watch a man develop, you know, in those ten years in such a you know as such a crude uh, practitioner. Uh, if you look at his drawings from the beginning. Um, you know, actually sitting down and having the time to do or needing to do the work and not having anything else to do necessarily, perhaps. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that we kind of forget about art and artists and the world as it was, is the pace of it and the way in which people had focus or kinds of focus. If they weren't, you know, constantly beaten down by labor, uh, they might have actual focus to, to do these kinds of things. But that doesn't mean everybody can be a Van Gogh or uh, a Melville or or a Rembrandt or things like that. So, but I wanted to to shift into the 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 Rembrandt chapter again because it was just such a fascinating move to political consciousness, to a different kind of consciousness from from when when he started. So, tell us a little bit about uh, about that if you don't mind.
2: Just trying to remember whens Rembrandt born. He's born in 1606, I think. Mhm. Um so so this is Several decades after the Dutch Revolution of fifteen sixty eight, which is which is part revolution, part civil war, part um, part of it is a rebellion against the Spanish, uh, you know, the kind of post feudal absolutism of 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 Spain, which has this huge empire which stretches everywhere and encompasses the Dutch. Um, so. On the one hand, it's a, you know, what some of us, and I'm one of them, consider to be the kind of very, very earliest successful uh, bourgeois revolution. Mm. It's about, you know, knocking down kind of feudal privilege, knocking down kind of trade tariffs. Um, It's about, you know, creating a a system in which merit plays much more of a part than kind of aristocratic lineage. Um, So it's it's progressive in all sorts of ways. Um, at the same time, you know, it creates a super acceleration to the Dutch economy. These cities expand at an incredible rate um, because of, you know, productive techniques which have been developed on the countryside. Um, and, you know, it, it morphs very quickly into a kind of a world-storming empire. And in that context, it has certain extremely dark... Um, implications i mean the dutch east india com- company is created in sixteen oh sixteen oh two, 1602 so four years before mm. rembrandt's birth and um, they practice you know the, the kind of worst forms of slavery child slavery in the uh, colonies which they slowly you know grow into and control in the far east and at home there is this uh terrible um, forms of labour restructuring. I mean, we see it in England. We see it with the enclosure movements, um, you know, the the people being separated from the land, uh, criminals, I mean, by criminals, people who were stealing sheep or stealing loaves of bread, being branded, sometimes executed, the kind of ascension of private property as being something absolutely sacred and the protection of which is often public. Uh, punishable by death
1: Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm.
2: so so you get these these twin engines you get this kind of incredible liberation of this situation in which markets expand and the art market in particular becomes prolific and uh, even relatively ordinary people bakers uh, shoemakers so on and so forth can have the the which is not all that great to earn to to own a, a Rembrandt, mm. and at the same time there's this dark underbelly, slavery, child labour, uh, an expansion of homelessness, um, and so on and so forth. And I think that you know Rembrandt's art is dualistic in this way, and it it represents in one sense it's a homily to all that an economy can do once it's been unfettered from feudal limits you know, and, and and to the great, you know, progressive elements which are inherent in that. And two, it's a recognition of all the dark side of, of what uh, primitive accumulation, as Marx described it, you know, the, the, the processes which are needed uh, to call into being a developed capitalist economy.
0: Mm. How is Rembrandt then um, an angel in this particular scenario?
2: Well, um, I mean, that's that's a really good question. I think in, in a, a, in an immediate sense, he's not. Um, he is a scion of the bourgeoisie. He, he's an incredibly gifted artist from very, very early on. And he receives all, as you said before, you know, he's not going into a life of labor. He receives all the benefits of being able to, uh, pursue his interests, which the majority of people don't, don't ever have. Um, and he, he, um, paints, you know, the, the the leading lights of the time. He um, is taken into the bosom of, of the very, very highest society. Um, but what I think is particularly great about him is that even though he's incredibly aspirant, um, his art is so powerful and so incisive that he's unable to ignore the integrity of it. Mm. So he finds himself... Uh, doing sketches of uh beggars that he sees on the streets and he invests them with in- incredible humanity he he paints a wonderful picture of uh two 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 slaves you know and and very 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 explicitly differentiates them i mean they you know one one of the slaves has this kind of look of curiosity and wonder and the other guy looks incredibly downtrodden and they're both kind of huddled together um and it is one of the the most wonderful antidotes to kind of racism you'll ever see, because of course the whole line is that all the slaves, all the blacks are just the same, and he's showing uh, in an aesthetic way how that's that's anything but true, and how both his subjects are invested with this great humanity mm. um, and it you know these things were kind of very, very controversial, and these kind of things uh, didn't sell particularly well and that that eventually ruined
0: him you're listening to a special 90 minute interchange our guest is tony mckenna author of a new radical anthology of political lives called angels and demons we're talking about rembrandt's 1666 painting lucretia and how it radically represents what is often lost in paintings on the subject a real human life Well, uh, you know, I wanted to uh, point to a particular um, painting. I, I think you end with this one... Um I'm not sure the name of it you can, is it Bathsheba or is it, the um, no, Lucretia? Uh, yeah, Lucretia? Yeah, Lucretia. Lucretia. Yeah, Lucretia. Let me just read what you say real quick here, sure, sure. Uh, and yep. then you can go forward into uh, describing it. As you, as you end with it, it's, uh, it's very powerful. Uh, you say here, um, Rembrandt's painting of her is perhaps one of the most powerful paintings which has ever been created. More than that, it is the work in which all the concerns which have fissured through Rembrandt's corpus throughout the interiority of the individual the nature of oppression, the hidden but inevitable presence of history, the subjugation of women. In this piece, all these themes achieve an aesthetic flashpoint which fuses them in a moment of rapturous, otherworldly synthesis and deadly calm. That's quite an explanation. That's that's some serious work right there.
2: Well thank you very much. Yeah. I mean that's very kind. Uh, the, the 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 whole awful thing which which comes from writing about Rembrandt and Van Gogh as well of course is that you know when you when you're writing about it you know that you 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 have the painting next to you I have I've I've actually got this painting saved because I loved it so much Mm. Uh, and then you look at the painting and you look at what you've written and you realize you know Rembrandt's done the job far (laughs) better than you're ever going to (laughs) right right. there's there's quite a distance there um so so I I I, I, he he did a he did a number of the Lucretia ones but I really would um suggest to anyone to 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 look them up because they are absolutely incredible and very moving Mm. um yeah
0: well, it's a good way for uh, to to I guess uh, express his angelicness at that point. Then, um, in a the sense that there's a thing that comes through that you have been ex- extremely moved by and been able to express in this way.
2: Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah, right. yeah,
0: yes. yeah. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Great. yeah. Great to
2: the title. Yeah. 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 I mean, absolutely. Right. I mean, again, a lot of these paintings, which were painted at the end of his life, were um i think i talked about one of them earlier on um but but he's he's he, he's he's virtually destitute mm-hmm. i mean he, he, you know in the in the 1630s he's um very successful very lauded very wealthy he's lost his um by this point and we're talking about the 1650s i think he's lost um nearly all his money uh, he's lost his his big house he's moved had to move somewhere else
0: well what was the turn was the turn a political one for him or what happened
2: yes i mean i think i think kind of more fashionable artists took over mm. um and but i but 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 i also think that there were Um, the further you get from the Dutch Revolution, the more that the Northern Netherlands becomes an empire, Mm -hmm. the more you want, or if you're you're in the upper echelons of that society, the more you want people to glorify you, the more you want the equivalent of what the aristocrats would have described as court painters. Mm -hmm. And again, this relates to the unrelenting aesthetic integrity of Rembrandt. I don't think, you know, consciously he had... Uh, fantastic politics
0: mm-hmm.
2: I mean this is this this is again the point right right um, but the, the 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 truth of the world that he was living in and its contradictions and uh you know consistently bled through and he was unable to um to to kind of ignore them mm. and as he goes on he receives um a commission um i think it's um it's a commission to paint the figure of a um, uh, a rebel who, who fought against the Roman Empire um, and was in the kind of what we now, now call the Netherlands. So the Dutch bourgeoisie were very, very adamant that that this person could be kind of conscripted in their own empire building, you know that they that they were brave and rebellious and storming the world, and uh, so they so they get Rembrandt to paint it, and they want him to paint a kind of a figure of a kind of Dutch uh, resist resistor revolutionary radical. Um, who embodies all the glories of the the future republic which they are manning which they are the heads of uh, but instead Rembrandt gives them this incredibly sinister decadent portrayal of this kind of one-eyed mm. man donned in a crown who looks almost like a specter mm. and it's it's a lament on the kind of the kind of um, decadence which is, I think developing in the republic as it becomes more and more um, directed towards its its empire, and also a uh, a premonition of its own imminent collapse.
0: Hmm. So he was uh, then had less uh, commissioned work at this point, or is that you know in terms of his destitution? Well,
2: virtually none. Yeah. Okay. Well, virtually none. I mean this this would have been a huge um, pay packet for him. Yeah. And it would have basically raised him up out of the poverty that he now found himself in, it would have restored his social status, no doubts, to a good extent.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so all the guy had to do was just do a nice kind of cartoon right. being, you know, relatively complimentary to his benefactors. Right. Um, and, you know, the, 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 he, he dies in penury. He, he's buried in an unmarked grave. Mm. Um, he could have avoided all of that had he just been a bit more diplomatic with, with his art. Right. And you don't get the sense that he did this because he had some kind of political ideal that he was looking at the republican uh you know the north netherlands and right. thinking you know they're doing all this bad stuff abroad i'm very very politically opposed to them right it's just that his art was of such a right. quality that he just couldn't not but right. produce it i mean mark says somewhere about milton that, you know, he, he, he created his art in the same way that a silkworm creates silk. Right. It's a necessary uh, manifestation of his own essence.
0: Right, right, right. Interestingly, I think um, people have called Milton of the Devil's Party, in a good way. Yeah, absolutely, I mean, I completely concur with that. Right, right, right. It's time for another break. This is Friend of the Devil, Performed by Counting Crows. When we return, we focus on two writers, Andrea Dworkin and Christopher Hitchens, who will, of course, be angel or demon, depending on which side of the devil you're on. Stay with us. I lit out
1: from Reno, was trailed by 20 hands. I didn't get to sleep last night till the morning came around sit out running but i take my time a friend of the devil is a friend of mine if i get home before daylight I just might get some sleep tonight
0: Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is author Tony McKenna, and we're enjoying a wide-ranging conversation about the political figures he profiles in his new book, Angels and Demons, a radical anthology of political lives. For this segment, we turn the lens on two polarizing writers, the radical feminist Andrea Dworkin and the demonizing war apologist Christopher Hitchens. Well, let's turn. uh, Let's turn to uh, another person. Uh, We'll move to a pairing that we have here. Andrea Dworkin and Christopher Hitchens. Maybe we'll go there next. Dworkin uh, back in the news or maybe most people might not have heard of her even. uh, But uh, Dworkin uh, was born in 1946, died in 2005, an American radical feminist uh, best known for criticism of pornography, uh, which she uh, argued was linked to rape and forms of violence against women. Um and her views were widely criticized. She herself was widely criticized um, and more than criticized, um, basically abused, really by in literally in life as well as by her critics. Uh, if there was anybody that suffered at the hands of you know every person you could think of. It was Andrea Dworkin.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, I I think I think that, that, that there are you. There are a, a, a few things in her work which are worth kind of criticizing, but you're completely right. And I think, um, I mean, most of us on the radical left, we, we, we have this to some extent. We have, you know, our ideas ridiculed. You know, as a Marxist, I always get told that what my thoughts will or, or my arguments will always end up in kind of a, a Stalinist dictatorship or, um, that th- these kind of ridiculous, ridiculous things uh but i mean dorkin really had it to the nth degree i mean i don't know anybody who really had it worse in that respect
0: mm-hmm. um vilified really constantly um you know one of the things that's hard uh, about dorkin is that most people won't have the stomach to read her um and will want to be against her probably as the, as a, in a in a norm like as a norm um to to stand against the kind of non socially acceptable ideas you know man hating well women hating um actually you know um her her contention of woman hating really says you know men and women both hate women <laughs> right, so yeah. uh, you know it's a it's a no holds barred argument on Dworkin's part to say that the culture is one, the the society is one in which women are subjugated, denigrated, abused, raped, and that intercourse itself, even between men and uh, uh, a, a man, a husband and a wife, um, partners, uh, are uh, is akin to rape. And trying to understand intercourse is a big part of of that and it's the the book primarily i think that you work on or talk about in in this collection is intercourse.
2: Yeah, yeah, i mean i i I'd read andrea dorkin a lot earlier and was just blown away because i think i mean it's it sounds kind of superficial really but she's just such a, uh, an amazingly beautiful writer mm. and she's so fluid and so poetic um and it's just that in in itself is is Surprising, because you you think that that kind of work would appear in all the biggest publications that she'd be writing for the New York Times every other week. Um, but of course, it's not the case. I mean, the 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 best way to destroy uh, a political ideology is to make it ridiculous, to make it comical, to make the people who espouse it um, in some way. You know, crazies or loonies or whatever it is, Right, right. and um, you know that that that's what they did to her. They 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 were big publications would kind of publish exactly what you've just said that she thought that all intercourse was a was was rape, which she she never never ever wrote or or, or said, at least not to my knowledge. Um, but yeah. the the. Sorry, go on.
0: I was just going to say, you know, one of the the essential things about Dworkin in that way and the reactionary response to Dworkin and the reactionary mobilization of uh, anti-feminism in in many ways has to do literally with Dworkin's appearance. You know, one of the issues that we continue to face with people being anti-feminist is that they're not anyone you would have sex with if you were a real man because they're ugly or fat or anything like that. So Dworkin becomes the the clown uh, to be a against feminism with, just simply by being, by looking what she how she looked?
2: Oh, I, I, I think that's absolutely the case, the kind of uh, vitriol that she got um, poured over her because of her physical appearance. But I also think that that tells you something much more about the critics. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole point is that they're moving, they're, they're, they're beginning with the premise that what's a woman's role in the world? Well, the fundamental role of a woman is to be beautiful, to be sexually attractive, mm-hmm. to be able to entice a mate, a man. Um, and she was, according to them, uh, a failure on this. So she deserved to be despised. She deserved to be reviled, and they they did a good job of doing that. But it it does at the same time show you exactly why we need Andrea Dorkin, The the very fact that they could make those kind of right. comments.
0: You're listening to a special 90-minute interchange. Our guest is Tony McKenna, author of a new radical anthology of political lives called Angels and Demons. We're talking about principled radical feminist Andrea Dworkin and new atheist and war apologist Christopher Hitchens. You say uh, one of the reasons you pit her against uh, Hitchens or say here's a writer that stayed radical, that was radical, stayed radical, suffered for that radical uh, being... And compare that to a uh, Christopher Hitchens, who uh, might have started out radical, but kind of ended up the way many on the, I guess, uh, uh, maybe bourgeois left become reactionary right in many ways. And there's been any number of tomes about this shift in in political persuasion as you age. But um, uh, Hitchens is a, a rank, ex, uh, a rank example of of. Uh, uh, I don't know something like that goes sour in life in in a lot of ways. Um, so how 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 is Hitchens uh, uh, compared to Dworkin, or why why did you why would you think these two would pair?
2: You have got it exactly right. Um, you say that um, a lot of people and they do. I mean, people make that transition as they get older, as they have kids, uh, as they have families, as they have more pressing economic obligations. Um, There's often a pressure to become, I suppose, more establishment-minded, you know, to to be sensible and to just grow up and to, you know, get your house in order. Uh, But Hitchens was something a little different from that, in in that what he did was he he moved to the right very, very quickly and very swiftly, although you might argue that those instincts were there for all sorts of reasons beforehand. Mm -hmm. But he did something very, very important. He performed a great service for the right wing. And that was his uh, description of religion. Uh, And his description of religion was essentially ahistorical. Um, It was, you know, what a lot of people have called new atheism. It's that all people who are religious are kind of, you know, irrational. They haven't passed through the Enlightenment. They haven't um, really been able to give up the fairy stories of humanity's prehistory, they're deluded and so on and so forth, but he applied this particularly to Islam and that's extremely important because you know, when you put that in the context of the wars in the Middle East, which which particularly Intensified and in the twenty first century. Um, if you go back a hundred hundred years, if you go back to um, somebody like Rudyard Kipling, who's, who's a, a, a wonderful writer, he had a very very bellicose imperialist idea about race, raceology, imperialism, and the way that they were in, intertwined. You know, he he promoted it in that poem, "A White Man's Burden,"
1: mm-hmm.
2: and. It, it, it was. It, it came out of the social Darwinianism of the nineteenth century. The white race is superior. Uh, the the darker races in the world also happening happening to be the object of um, imperial plunder and exploitation. They will not be able to raise themselves up without being conquered and modernized by um, you know the bigger countries, right, England. Right. Um, I mean, I think Kipling actually directed that. Poem towards the US. Right. Okay. So, so you've got a very, very crude, pseudo-scientific idea of racial superiority. Um, you know, the whites being the top of the chain. Now, by the time you get to Hitchens, those kind of things have been extreme. You know, very, very effectively disqualified. Uh, you, you get the kind of back mad people on the fringes who who still go along with it. But most most people, even even. Of the right persuasion uh, won't touch that kind of thing. So you, so so racism—it's a disease, and like any disease, it mutates. Mm. So you get this transition from biological racism, i.e., literally of races, to um, what I'd call a cultural form of racism, which is the idea that people that Islam is somehow um, inherently barbarous, uh, primitive, atavistic, and that people who are uh, you know, in the Middle East in particular, uh, are, are, are enthralled to this. The only way they can um, be pulled out of it, because they haven't had a reformation, they haven't received an enlightenment, the only way they can be pulled out of it is to have the West, Western powers move in and right. basically bomb the crap out of them and give them democracy. So he did a very, very important thing for the ruling classes and their imperial project
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: while at the same time cloaking that in radical cred- credentials while at the same time saying this is a second enlightenment um, these people you know do not do not practice equal rights they're not they're not feminists and so on and so forth and right. um, and that's why we need to bomb them.
0: you're listening to a special 90 minute interchange our guest is tony mckenna author of a new radical anthology of political lives called Angels and Demons. We're talking about why it's easy to demonize groups when you constantly remove historical context from the analysis. To me, it sounds like um, generally the angels in this group tend to be people that you might have a hard time agreeing with in a lot of ways, but that open your thinking up that won't close the door to thinking that you're sort of stuck with trying to have to fight with their ideas while usually on the other side, we're shutting down thinking primarily.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's another, another kind and an accurate characterization. I think I, I think there is some sense it, uh, just to go back to Hitchens again mm-hmm. in, in you know when you see something that ISIS have done uh there's there, there there's a there's a great temptation to respond to that in an immediate sense and to think these people are such horrors which of course they are I mean they're absolutely a, they're absolutely appalling but when you look at something like Afghanistan um as it was in the early 70s, under you, you, you have a, a, a population which is fundamentally majority Muslim, you have a government which is also Muslim, um, and it's a very, very different place. It's a place where uh European young Europeans come to smoke pot, it's a place where music is freely played, it's a place where girls can go to school, and so on and so forth. And this is all under a, a kind of Islamic jurisdiction. And then what happens? Well you get um a kind of Soviet inspired government which uh leads basically a coup and takes power and then you get uh an uh the, the, the American reaction to that. And you get a decade of civil war, uh, you know, and you get the rise of the Mujahideen. I always get that
0: Mujahideen, I always yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Pronounce that incredibly badly, <laughs> and then you know, sometime later in the in the uh, mid nineties, you get the establishment of the uh, the Taliban, um, and then you get a horrific kind of theocratic state which does all the all the horrors that Hitchins. Uh, imputes quite rightly to them you know acid in the face of mm-hmm. uh, schoolgirls who are trying to get an education I mean the most ho- the, the worst horrors you can imagine mm-hmm. um, but that's not a generic fact of something called Islam that's right. a fact of the um, Society fragmenting under the historical pressure of war uh, and invasion, not just from from Russia, but also U.S.-sponsored power. Um, So what Hitchens essentially did is he removed the historical element and he raised up something called Islam, which could then become you know, this kind of and
0: wall. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, a, it's an important point, I think, the point of yeah. when you talk about Marxist perspective, right? It's, yeah. unfortunately, now we can say it's, well, it's still not easy to say Marx and have anybody listen to you, even if we say socialism um, now. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, to say Marxist perspective is to say you've got to look at the historical fu- uh, function here. And I think most people, if they really thought about it, might spend some time saying, yes, we are products of these forces that come together and we can't just say the reason this evil is here, is X. Uh, oh, and, I, yeah, go ahead.
2: I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to say how, how absolutely apposite I think that is. It's absolutely true. Marx, Marxism, if you wanted to describe it crudely, it would just be historic historicism. It's right. just the idea of humanity as uh, an unfolding historical process. Mm-hmm. And the reactionary moment, I mean, especially in Hitchens, comes from when you try to abstract from that so right. you try to um, place a whole group you know under a, a, a single single generic quality which is what the racism of old used to do
0: right right well it's the it might be the definition of reactionary you know that, that that's what you do yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
2: I, I, I. That's right
0: Well, I think it's a playbook. It's a playbook that's been used from, from I don't know when. Um, I was thinking of, as you were talking about, how we denigrate Islam. Now, if you if you wish to denigrate it, it's it's almost always based uh, beyond uh, religion, but it's based in color as well, uh, or race, uh, again. And a lot of the same things you were saying um, are applied, in, 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 I think, when you were talking about um Kipling um, but you know we can look at our own history with Cuba, for example, right and 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 read um, editorials from the time uh, eighteen ninety eight uh, where eighteen ninety seven where we're, we're seeking to help the Cubans, right? right. Uh, to yeah. to talk about how great a people they are to stand against the Spanish, et cetera, et cetera. And then, yeah. as we move in to destroy them, right? To take their land yeah. as their saviors, we begin to see all the editorials talk about how childlike, uh, how in- incapable they are of helping themselves. They're yeah. no, they need very much the historical uh, uh, experience that we have, and we can give them to guide them to to at some point. make maybe govern themselves.
2: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I yeah. mean that's 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 completely the case in yeah. in Cuba. Yeah. It's
0: common. It was common with the uh, with the the slavery you know, enslaved South. It's the same. It's the same language that we use all the time uh, from the right. It's time for our final break. This is Trip Through Your Wires by You Two off of the 1987 album, The Joshua Tree. How is Hillary Clinton not like the fictional Alicia Florak on the television drama, The Good Wife? Find out when we return for more with Tony McKenna on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back, I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. For our final segment, we turn to our current morass of political confusion. We'll look at Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Hugo Chavez, and Jeremy Corbyn. Two of these McKenna describes as kind and sincere people. The other two, not so much. Yeah, but one of the things I I liked very much in terms of the Clinton chapter, and and we've had a few conversations on here about Clinton, obviously a very difficult, divisive political figure, one simply because she's a woman and and in this country it's still uh, a terrible thing to be a woman. And, and imagine yourself being a leader. So it was difficult to have people who want very much to support Hillary Clinton simply because she's a woman uh, and understanding that fact. But one of the things that, that you talk about is the, is the sheer sort of uh, opportunistic or careerist emptiness of Hillary Clinton um, that you pair with uh, the good wife, Alicia Florrick, and the good wife. You want to talk about that?
2: Well, I mean, I do, I do use Alicia Florrick as an example, although I think the character in that is far more sympathetic than
0: yeah. She's you know, not she's Hillary. That's right. You actually make it that she's aware of the things she's doing in *The Good Wife*. Yeah, yeah I mean, right. she's you yeah.
2: know, she's she's a kind of sympathetic, kind character who's who's torn, um, torn in a sense, you know, supporting her husband's campaign and. Um,
0: so on. Um, well, the point about I'll just uh, let me help a little bit just yeah, to, yeah, so, to move you into the to into the place a little quicker in terms of the the, the moment of that particular um, example is simply the sort of PR necessity of how you are a public figure and then talk about things that aren't true that you make lies into truths because you have to out of political necessity. She has said something in a show like she's the worst hell is is driving on the campaign bus through Iowa. This is probably true for herself right it's horrible to have to drive on the campaign bus through Iowa it doesn't really matter that you're in Iowa it'd be horrible to be in Rhode Island too probably at that point um, but she's you know lambasted as being the, you know this terrible person and the 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 ratings go down and and she has to give an apology and her apology is dead eyed because it's not true i mean she doesn't really feel sorry for saying this and uh, so you you compare it with how hillary clinton walks forward into a pr world uh, pr politics uh, that she has um made herself in in whatever image is necessary at the time to stay yeah. in political um in the political world at the top of the political world and that there is only this recitation and repetition of the pr speak of politics now
2: in the alicia Floric case i think she's dead eyed because there is a living Kind of human breathing personality mm-hmm. behind the PR. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So
2: she's she's in contradiction with it. Gotcha, and I think gotcha. a lot of people um, are pressured in politics to to speechify, to use PR people, and so on and so forth. What I think is remarkable about Hillary Clinton is that she's so at one with that process. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, it isn't it isn't the case that there's some authentic Hillary Clinton which has been somehow foisted onto the limelight and is having to make concession after concession after concession. I think she is her PR. Oh, I think okay. she is somebody who is prepared to say and do virtually anything to take any funding, to take any kind of dodgy kind of donor, any, to, to support any kind of dictator, to right. um, proselytise for any type of war. Um, I I think there's nothing anymore which is underneath that appearance.
0: Well, is this a fact of of the world we live in? I mean, obviously it seems clear in Clinton we talk about being able to, you don't have to parse the words, you have to look at, at the actions, right? You have to look at the foundation, look. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not too difficult to see that she embodies exactly what you say. She moves whichever way the wind blows for the money and the politics. Um, Even if you put a D or an R or an independent anywhere in the, it doesn't matter what you say you are. You just have to operate in the game in a certain space and she does it. Is that a problem though, generally in the sense, and this is why I think it's nice to bring Corbyn in here uh, because you do, I think, try to set him against that kind of politics, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I that, that, that's absolutely right. I think one of the big appeals about Corbyn is that, um, I mean, unfortunately, I think it's also it also carries across to Trump to some extent. But one of the the reasons why Trump is uh, perhaps more popular than he ever should be is because people see him as and he's not i mean he's 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 an absolute guardian of of uh imperial war and big business and tax breaks on the rich but he's able to in some way come across Mm -hmm. as not being simply a product of the kind of well-oiled lubricated political machine Mm -hmm. and hillary clinton is the the, the apotheosis of that.
0: No, and you argue yeah. argue as much that this is just an uh, that Obama was an extension of that as well.
2: Yes, I mean uh, on on the issue of uh, Trump, Obama, and Clinton, I'll just say a couple of words if that's okay. Sure, go ahead. Uh, I, I I I think of it in almost Freudian terms. You know, in this in Freud, you get the idea of the id. Mm -hmm. which is all the primitive animalistic stuff lurking beneath the surface. And then you get the super ego, which is the conscience, which regulates your everyday behavior. And I think that Clinton, Obama, and Trump, I mean, Trump is worse than those other two. There's no doubt about that in my mind. But they are all expressions of the same ruling power. And I think that the, the reason why Trump is despised in part by a large number of people on the in, in the ruling class is because with Clinton and Obama you get this very 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 polished image and you get Obama uh, looking back to the kind of black civil rights movements um, and in some sense using those to fortify his own politics uh, which is which is an irony given if you look you know you get the black lives matter uh, campaign in the last year of um, Obama's administration, you get the slaying of unarmed blacks taking place. At a higher level than it's ever taken place before. Um, Clinton, for her part, is is claiming credentials with the feminist movement. So, so, so they're both um, dressing themselves in these kind of uh, progressive forms, which makes them a lot more palatable. Mm. Now, when I say Trump represents the id of the ruling class, when you see Trump. You know, his racism, his sexism, his misogyny, it's all there. It's all bubbling up from everything he says. In fact, he's unable to kind of suppress it, really. Mm-hmm. So I think that people on the on the right, to some extent, uh, or at least the people in the establishment, loathe Trump because he, he makes naked and visible what people like Obama and Clinton have spent decades um, being kind of professional managers of capitalism they're able to push all that stuff beneath the surface so you know uh clinton is able to be completely and horrifically undemocratic she um threatens to you know take nuclear action and uh, against Iran. She supports a coup, the coup in Honduras in uh, 2009, which leads to death squads and the um, suppression of the democratically elected president Zelaya. Um, but she's able to kind of disguise a lot of that stuff with the rhetoric of a progressive. And Obama does the same, you know, as he, as he, um, I mean, one interesting statistic is that, that, uh, not many people know this but obama actually um led uh enacted 10 times more airstrikes than uh george w bush mm-hmm. so he was really pursuing these kind of murderous uh, imperial campaigns. but but they're able to kind of dumb that down and trump isn't so i think you know trump in a sense represents the id
0: you're listening to a special 90 minute interchange Our guest is Tony McKenna, author of a new radical anthology of political lives called Angels and Demons. We're talking about the way Trump has revealed the Freudian id, often masked by leaders like Barack Obama. You try to balance this with Corbin in particular, and you end the book with Corbin. I, I think you do so or tried to do so with Chavez as well. Chavez was president of Venezuela from 99 until his death in 2013, leader of the Fifth Republic movement, uh, founded in 97 until 2007, when it merged with several parties to form the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, uh, which he led until 2012. Uh, now, Chavez comes from... Uh, poverty, right, comes from the the quote, quote unquote lower, lower orders of Venezuela, and this is part of one his appeal, and and part of why uh, elites hated him as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's he's raised in a mud hut in a in, in a very very impoverished village, and he's sent away, and eventually he he goes into the military to escape that poverty. Um. So, so yes, uh, he does. I, I, I think also important is to reference how intertwined race and class is in Venezuela to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the, the dark-skinned uh, majority are very, very, very much absolutely impoverished. Um, mm-hmm.
0: It's in a kind of an apartheid state itself, right?
2: It's not far from it. Right, I right. mean, well, I mean, arguably a lot of what Chavez has done has changed that. But, it, mm-hmm. But in the time when he's coming into prominence it's you get you get situations where for example um the maps that are produced don't actually show the barrios and the shape of the communities on the hills because they're not worth bothering about right so there's a kind of the the dark skin majority are almost registered invisible Mm -hmm. and on the tv channels you get you know these ghastly awful kind of soaps featuring very very white skinned uh, Venezuelans almost indifferent to the presence of
0: Venezuela itself right 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 so so Chavez uh, uh, in a sense comes out of that it's his actual appearance that causes a lot of people to dislike him as a leader uh, he looks like that underclass looks like that majority that that has been uh, attempted to been uh, to have been uh, disappeared in a lot of ways and um So, so, but, but there's a problem you say really with Chavez as a leader as well. A lot of this book is interesting because it's, it's as much saying these are great things that a lot of these people have done or did, but there's, there's always some problem, always some failing, always some uh, blind spot maybe in how they approach their particular situation.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm coming from, from that point of view as a, a kind of Marxist thinker, um, and what I I suppose rather arrogantly call a true Marxism, and I interpret Marx as saying um, that we're talking about what, what what we want to aspire to is the dictatorship of the proletariat. Now that doesn't mean dictatorship in the in, in the way that we commonly mean it. Uh, what it means is it means the control of um, political power uh, th- via the democratic majority at the grassroots level. So. Um, everybody everybody who, who works, everybody who works in a shop, everybody who works in a factory, everybody who works in a call center. There's no uh, private capital. There's no investors who um, right. control them. They are all joint owners, if you like. Right. And contributors to that, and and that there's a there's a political democracy which flows from the bottom
0: upwards. Right, and it's part of part of the issue uh, that uh, that you bring out here is that even as Chavez comes from those masses, comes from that class, um, he's not like he's still ruling over it, ruling as some representative of it, instead of the class itself making those decisions.
2: Well, yes, I wouldn't say ruling. I'd say that there is, um, you know, there's a democratic process which does uh, take place under Chavez. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, obviously he's only in power because so many of those people vote for him.
1: Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But that process can only go so far. I mean, we've seen what, you know, some commentators talk about uh, as the formation of a Boli bourgeoisie. Mm hmm. So so a new bourgeoisie, which is created under the auspices of the Chavez government, mm. that the people who are coming up from below, coming to power, um, begin to line their own pockets. Um, and they form a new kind of uh, rich caste mm-hmm. within the, uh, the the old order. So and, begin to f- time-
0: and begin yeah. to form a bureaucracy that's, that, that takes over then.
2: Yes, mm-hmm. yes. I mean – Absolutely. And if you don't have direct control from the people below um, 100 percent of the time, week by week, month by month, then however good your leader is, however politically astute he is, however genuine he is. And I think Chavez was an incredibly genuine person. Mm -hmm. um, You can't stop those kind of forms from solidifying
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's one of the questions
2: that more as we move towards maduro you see a new elite kind of take shape and have a lot more control and you know it begins to behave like the old elite it begins to open up the country to super corporations internationally speaking i mean that's what maduro has done with the Mm -hmm. arco mineral Project. Project. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, and it made it makes it easy to imagine the uh, the particular coup of Guido um, stepping into that space.
2: Yeah, I mean they've been after that for, for a long time. Right, I mean, right. obviously there was a coup which was effected against Chavez in two thousand and two. Right, right, right. Um, and I think it, it has, you know, it's it's not just about a class thing; it's also about a racial thing. Mm-hmm. The idea that that you know somebody who's was often portrayed in the private media as being a monkey. Uh, Mm -hmm. They often called for his assassination openly. The the, the most kind of visceral hatred and kind of murderous antagonism. Um, And that was all graduated in uh, 2002 when they illegally removed Chavez from Mm -hmm. power. Um, And it's... It's part and parcel of the broader social dynamic where uh, darker-skinned or indigenous people were only ever seen in the guise of being uh, people who clean people's houses and clean people's toilets, and they had that level of invisibility. And to have somebody like Chavez actually take the reins of state was a was a slight, mm. which, uh, uh, which was obscene to them.
0: You're listening to a special 90-minute interchange. Our guest is Tony McKenna, author of a new radical anthology of political lives called Angels and Demons. We're talking about Hugo Chavez as a true representative of the underclasses in Venezuela and how the sincerity and good faith of such leaders can be manipulated by capitalist bureaucracy. You know, one of the, the funny, the irony of that that is, in some sense, right, is that if you are of that uh, class, if you're of the, the invisible masses, and someone out of that class takes the reins, you wish heartily that the, the the that person would have would find a way to just destroy the very system that he took the reins of.
2: Yeah, I mean that's certainly the wish, but you cannot destroy it because right, you're right. doing it from the point of view of a parliamentary democracy, <laughs> right. which is set up right. Um, you know, in accordance to certain it's quite resilient relationships. Yeah, right,
0: right. very and resilient.
2: The only way to destroy it is not to look for that faith in a leader, right. but for the people below to take control of society's economic organs.
0: Now how are we going to move into with Corbyn then in the sense that he, if you can imagine another genuine uh, kind um, person, um, finding himself at the head of head of a party and and trying to be true to those particular values, you you're you are worried um, that there are ways in which that goes goes wrong also.
2: Absolutely, I mean, um, Corbyn harkens back to a time of of you know the golden age of social democracy in England, where we well in the UK where we saw the creation of um, the NHS. Um, which happened after the second world war under Attlee. uh but it was also a time of huge economic expansion so Keynesianist type pol- economic policies really worked for for, for for decades in assuring the lives of the people below you know real substantial gains so you know I'm not I'm not I'm not counterposing uh, an absolute revolutionary you know communist type Marxism an absolute political democracy from below to anything that can be achieved within parliamentary capitalism. I think Chávez did achieve a lot. Um, But the problem with Corbyn's project is that he is going to come to power uh, if he does, which I very sincerely hope he does, he's going to come to power in a time where um, we're not having that kind of boost to the world economy. So the pressures on him are going to be absolutely... Uh, relentless, and I think you know he can either capitulate, so he can either drop a lot of the policies that he's advocated, or you know he'll be he'll he'll be pressured to kind of take a more kind of radical solution, which will be difficult in all sorts of ways for other reasons.
0: Mm. You compare him, though, in the book, uh, you know, you sort of close the book with Pinochet and Allende, which is an interesting, yeah. interesting way to close close your book, um, which is obviously a dark warning.
2: Yes. I mean, um, the, the comparison is loose because – um, Allende came to power under a, an incredibly powerful mass movement, and fascist reaction has historically been mobilized against. You know, in, in, in Allende's, uh, from 1970 onwards, the uh, workplaces were actually, to go back to what we were talking about before, there were Soviets created, and by Soviets, I mean workers' committees. Mm-hmm workers' power created through workplace organisation, which, you know, England is, uh, the UK is nothing close to that. Um, But what I do think is similar in Allende's case and Corbyn's case is that Allende, despite his kind of radical socialist politics, uh, put every faith he had in the parliamentary democracy, which is what he was working through. So when the workers armed, when the workers mobilised, partly because of the threat of uh, the, the military, and the counter-reaction, um, he told them to stand down. And in so doing, he, he sealed his own fate, I think. Now, Corbyn, on a very, very smaller and less uh, terminal level, does something similar. He, he, he constantly conciliates with the, you know, there was a coup attempt against him, mm. but basically um, a group of politicians in the uh, upper echelons of the Labour Party um, tried to get rid of him by using all sorts of slanders, um, by um, mobilizing the media that was naturally on their side, mm-hmm. by trying to raise the money uh, for Labour Party membership, which would exclude a lot of the poor people who were flowing into the Labour Party and would have voted against them. Um, so, so after all that happened and after Corbyn managed to remain in power, but in in, in Labour Party terms by a landslide he then reached out to those same people and said look hey we're all part of the same Labour family hmm. we've just got to get on with this so in other words he doesn't see what's going on necessarily as a kind of class conflict he, he sees these people just being antagonistic towards him because they haven't quite realised that his ideas are sensible or reasonable
0: Ah, <laughs> that seems a little naive
2: Yes, I mean I think that's right
0: That's our show. We'll close with The Old Devil Moon, performed here by the Miles Davis Quartet, off of the 1954 album Blue Haze. Thanks to Tony McKenna for joining me for a long conversation about a few angels and devils who loom large for good and ill in politics and literature. His new book is Angels and Demons, a radical anthology of political lives, out from zero books. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Jim Thrasher assisted with editing today's show. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.